All right, Dave, how are you doing? This is great to reconnect. We talked back in 2014 when we did, did your early entrepreneur journey story. So let's catch up. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's been an exciting six years. Certainly a lot to talk about. Tell me um, what happened in the time frame in the last six years, highlighting what major inflection points happened, what major strategic changes happened, and we'll take it from there. Well, I think that uh, it's when we spoke last, I think I was talking a lot about the importance of making a, uh, a profitable subscription-based business that just grows steadily year after year. And mm-hmm. I think that we just really stuck with that. I think that uh, from the start, we've always aimed at making Expensify a self-sufficient, uh, a direct acquisition um, sort of subscription model sort of business that just grows steadily over time. And that provides an incredibly stable place for attracting the best talents, retaining them indefinitely, uh, and just going off and doing great things. And so I think we've really held true to that initial vision and and really sort of doubled down on it. And so from one perspective, you could say actually very little has changed in that the business is we're just kind of a better version of the thing we were in 2014. We just have more Mm -hmm. experience doing it. We um, have a stronger team that understands uh, our principles and our best practices, and we're really devoted to them. So uh, kind of on one side, I would say from like a, a business perspective, very little has changed actually. I mean, we're more mm-hmm. profitable uh, in all of this. We're just, just better. I'd say from kind of um, a market perspective, it's been interesting because when we started off, we were very, very small. And so the tactics that work as a very small company don't necessarily scale to be a very big company. Um, and by that, I mean something like customer acquisition. Um, so for example, <coughs> we have this very steady uh, – uh, stream of signups from the very start because of our sort of mobile first acquisition model. Everything starts basically with individual users downloading the mobile app for free, uh, not asking permission, just starting to use us and then pulling us into the organization. And then over time, the more you use us in the company, your company just gradually adopts. And so it's this word of mouth, zero marginal cost user acquisition model. And that's worked really great and it's still the business model we have right now. Um, but initially, it was uh, you know, very driven by this mobile funnel, and then we kind of went to a conference funnel for a while. Um, and now it's really just around kind of like this viral uh, K-factor and word of mouth. And so I'd say the business model, um, it's fundamentally the same under the hood, uh, except mm-hmm. kind of the source of leads has sort of like shifted over time. And as we've expanded out into the marketplace, now we can support the biggest companies and the smallest companies and all of this, but the company itself is, is pretty much the same. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's, everything's bigger. Everything's better. But it, on one hand, it's just kind of just more of the same. That's great. Um, so one question, uh, if I remember correctly, you had told me when you were in the early days that you kind of acquire customers in a B2C mode, let the even in larger companies, let some ground swell happen and then go do enterprise deals. Is that uh, still the case? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, yeah, you get it right. I would say um, a difference is the word enterprise is kind of ambiguous. Um, And when people start using that word, it kind of implies that there is this moment where um, you know, the company is like, okay, let's get serious. Uh, we're going to have a procurement team reach out to one of our salespeople and negotiate a contract, that kind of thing. But that doesn't really happen. Um, nearly none of our customers uh, uh, go through a sales process like that. Almost no one is on any sort of like custom contract or an invoicing. Virtually all of our customers, like 90% plus of our revenue, uh, just comes from a uh, credit card. A company just basically self-service adopts, puts on the credit card, and uses us. Mm-hmm. Um, and though we do have salespeople you can talk to and so forth, um, really the, our most effective sales channel is our customer support tool. Like I would say a big product change we've had since 2014 is really just perfecting the self-service funnel. And so mm-hmm. we have this uh, chat um, agent called Concierge, which is mm-hmm. behind the scenes, it's this huge multi-tiered AI-supported sort of you know globally distributed work group. But to you, it just seems like a a consistent personality that you can talk to 24-7 about literally anything involving expense management, Expensify, any of the tools we integrate with, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so we found that way more important than having some kind of like classic sales contract sort of approach is just having the absolute best customer support possible. Like every mm-hmm. single uh, – uh, when you chat with us, you get a response within, you know, uh, under – I think it's something like 80% of our of – our, 
conversations are responded to in under two minutes. Uh, and we worked very hard to get a very fast uh, and consistent support experience because we know that self-service is the future of this. It's not really about enterprise sales. So you are doing a B2C uh, SaaS business. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I guess you could – I mean, we, we blur a lot of these lines. Um, so we have millions and millions of users, um, and numerically speaking, probably most of them actually don't use us inside of any corporate environment. It's basically just individuals using us to track their personal savings, to you know, manage their college expenses, uh, or uh, as a good traveling with people, they want to track expenses and things like this. And so the bulk of our user base actually is a true consumer just using us for free. Um, mm. And then our consumer user base basically pulls us into uh, a company. It's like, hey, I use this for myself. We should use it in my company. Um, and they start using us inside of the company for free. Uh, and then eventually the company uh, basically says, hey, this is a cool tool. I wonder if they can do more advanced things. Can I have additional controls and reimburse the system and, and all these other sort of features? And we say, yeah, it's, it's super cheap. It's like five bucks a month per employee. Um, and yeah, so then you can do all this other powerful stuff with it. Um, and so it's a consumer tool uh, that basically uses that to uh, engage with companies and then the companies themselves just self-service to adopt for more advanced functionality. Now, what is the number one use case? Is it not expense reporting? Well, I guess, again, it's a, um, a question of uh, how you view that. If you're saying what generates our revenue, well, then it's yeah. expense management. Um, so basically, because the, the, the consumer functionality is just free. Um, like you can scan receipts, you yes, can track your I'm asking about revenue. What generates the revenue? Yeah. Yeah. From a business perspective, it's uh, a business is paying to adopt us to manage the expenses. And so that would be, for example, um, configuring an expense policy that specifies uh, your travel rules. Uh, you can, we have a built-in travel feature, so you can just ask this concierge agent to do all of your travel booking. And that's just kind of built in for free. Um, uh, or rather, it's, built, it's one of the paid features that comes when a business adopts, if you will. And so there's a number of kind of business-centric functionality that companies will upgrade to get. Um, and, but it's all around the, the, the range of managing company expenses. And there, your primary competitor is Concur? Yeah, I would say, I mean, yes, in the sense that they are certainly the most classic expense management tool out there. Um, but they're very limited to <clears throat> um, – they're the classic enterprise player. In fact, everyone else in the marketplace is kind of a very classic enterprise player. And yeah. so, yes, they're competitive in the sense that they offer the same functionality, um, and every once in a while we'll encounter them in the marketplace. But we find that actually our method of acquiring customers acquires a kind of a completely different set of customers than they do um, because our, they're acquiring through you know, advertising and talking to the CFO and things like this, and so they're getting one set of customers. We are acquiring through individual employees, uh, just kind of promoting us to their company. And so the overwhelming majority of our customers are completely unaware of any of our competition. It's not like they did a competitive analysis. They just never even thought to check. And so, yes, they're competitors kind of on paper. In practice, we're just in completely different worlds. Mm-hmm. And um, what has changed in the market in the last six years? What are the big trends that are affecting your business? Well, I would say um, – I would say there's been kind of a collapse of the conference industry. For a while, there were a whole bunch of sort of accounting conferences that were, everyone would show up to and pitch and things like this. Uh, and that's just uh, kind of all fell apart. Um, I would say there's probably a number of reasons for this. You know, I think Intuit has taken a more of an interest in, before there was a bunch of a diverse kind of third-party market uh, for accounting conferences. And then Intuit kind of stepped in and created their own and that just kind of took all the oxygen out of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd say the conference kind of, channel kind of dried up. But at the same time, um, it's never that good in the first place. It was just something that was there. Um, I'd say the market's changed in that uh, now there's much more widespread adoption of the cloud, which sounds obvious, but like for a, a long time there, like a big question was like, is the cloud secure? Like where, where physically is my data stored? And like, a lot of these questions that just kind of signify a discomfort with the idea of cloud-hosted applications. Um, and that's all gone away. No one cares about it. Everyone's like, yes, of course, the Internet is amazing. Um, uh, Even Intuit has moved away from QuickBooks Desktop. Uh, They have basically kind of deprecated the entire tool. Everyone has finally gotten on board, like the Internet is here to stay. Um, 
I think, think the industry has really shifted towards self-service. Um, I think that we had a lot more demands for kind of a classic sales environment, probably the mm-hmm. last time we talked. Um, but it's interesting, even as we've grown our ability to kind of satisfy the customer that wants a classic sales experience, fewer and fewer of our actual customers even ask for it. That's really, I think, maybe as our self-service has gotten better, as the industry has matured, gotten more comfortable with the cloud, uh, and just the whole thing is just everyone's just so much more familiar and comfortable with self-service. I'd say those are probably the biggest changes. Now, um, you had talked about a slightly different uh, financing strategy when we last spoke. How have you built the company since then? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're profitable, and so we just put money in the bank every month. Um, so we don't raise money. We haven't – I don't think we've raised, actually, since we last talked. I would have to check the calendar. Um, like, we raised some money early on, um, but ever since then, we've just grown through profit. And, uh, indeed, I would say probably the most interesting thing is we've I, – I think Silicon Valley is just – they've forgotten what it means to be a profitable company, to be, like, a real business <laughs> Um, and yeah. real businesses have access to capital in different ways, and uh, we can take on debt because banks look at our recurring revenue, and they're like, wow, this is an incredibly low-risk uh, 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 lending. Um, and so what we've been doing actually is um, uh, taking our profit, leveraging it with debt, and then using that to actually do basically leveraged buyout of investors. And so the company has been actually been not selling shares. It's been buying back shares consistently over the past several years. Um, and then basically uh, using the shares that the company re- buy, uh, repurchases to put them into the options pool, and then we distribute those to employees. Um, and so the company has actually been very consistently essentially buying out former investors and then redistributing those shares through our options program uh, to employees. Uh, but you can only even imagine something like that if you are steadily profitable. Like, uh, and that's why I think it's that kind of having a reliable, recurring, profitable revenue uh, enables a whole new world versus a inconsistent um, uh, profitability. Like some companies will be like, we're profitable for a month, but then, we'll, but then we do something and lose a ton of money. It's like, no, if, you, if you're confident that you're going to be consistently profitable forever, then you can start to uh, make decisions based upon that and make bets play in that. So you raised about $5 million, if I recall, at the time when we spoke, and you haven't raised since. Oh, I think I, maybe we did one around 2014, maybe 2015. I can't remember the exact years. But the years all kind of blur together. Uh, we did do a round for like another, uh, another five or so. I think um, okay. uh, sometime some after that. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, mean, like, well, for a company of our scale, it's, it's basically zero. Like everyone else mm-hmm. is out there like, I never quite understood that, this, this idea that, uh, raising money is a sign of strength. I'd say like, no, no, no. Raising money is like chopping off your leg to sell it. It's, it's, it's the, the worst thing to do. It's the thing you do out of desperation. Um, and so no, I think that uh, we've raised a little bit because there were times in the early days when we were desperate, but we haven't been desperate for a very long time. And what uh, guidance can you provide us about your revenue range right now? Uh, we don't share any of those numbers, but I would say we're very comfortably uh, uh, th- like we have more customers than the sum of the rest of our industry combined. Now, that's a little misleading because Concur has uh, their focus on much bigger customers than ours, so Concur is certainly bigger than us, but like we're far and away bigger than everyone else, the sum of everyone else. You know, one of the trends that you haven't talked about that, is, that I'm noticing is, uh, is the platform as a service trend. Um, you know, Salesforce, of course, did a very nice job of, uh, growing their uh, platform, not just their app, uh, the CRM app. They grew, grew their platform, and they started that early on, and lots of companies got developed, lots of apps got developed, and their app exchange helped those con- companies, those startups connect with their customer base and so forth. It's, they've built a tremendous developer ecosystem and have acquired from that developer ecosystem, and then big companies like Viva came out of that. So your, to your point about building capital, capital efficient uh, software as a service companies, that's been a great strategy. Now, of late, other uh, major SaaS companies are following that strategy. Atlassian has done a nice job, Twilio, um, Shopify. These are companies that are building very nice developer ecosystems and following exactly that playbook. 
My hypothesis, given how crowded the SaaS market is becoming, uh, and, and, you know, just in MarTech, there are 10,000 companies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it's like, you know, and there are, you know, well over 200 companies with 100 million plus ARR. There are probably another 500 companies in the, if you look at the 50 million plus ARR bucket. So it's, you know, there are a lot of companies out there and and one of my observations and I've had a lot of conversations with people in this in the industry is that the ones that are going to get to the next level are going to be the ones that do a good job of developing a developer ecosystem building a developer ecosystem and and doing the same strategy the path strategy um, what what is your thought on that yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I kind of disagree with that. Um, and I take issue with some of your examples. Like, now, I don't know. This, this is first. I don't know. I'll, I'll lead with I have no idea. But here's my instincts. Um, so Salesforce, for example, certainly is really known for its platform and all of that. But I would be curious for a breakdown, actually, of their revenue. How much of their revenue comes from services they've built internally and are selling, like you know, Salesforce, the CRM, and things like this, versus the, the ecosystem. And I would guess that probably most of it is actually they're just building products and selling them. And the ecosystem is probably very good from a marketing perspective, an awareness perspective. It really cements themselves into companies. But I, I don't know, like, if, if Salesforce didn't have that, are we certain it wouldn't still just be a giant powerhouse? Um, I would say, like, a, um, like, Twilio is different because it doesn't have it, – it's only a developer tool, so I think that's kind of a different thing. It doesn't have a mix of uh, sort of developer tools and also uh, end-user products, so I think that's kind of maybe a different thing. Atlassian, yes, it has a developer ecosystem, but it sells tools to developers. Um, and I would say it's uh, – like, I don't know that they've – for example, I don't know that there's a ton of developers that contribute to their open-source projects. Like Jira is a big deal. Like it's open-source. Oh, I think. Um, but I would wager, like most open source projects, probably 99% of the code that's written is made by the company. Like maybe the, you know, there's a, an, a halo effect to a degree, but I, I would wager that most of it is just kind of a classic company building and selling products. And in, in our industry, I think that, um, I think Intuit has seen this. Um, I think that again and again, we've seen people try to make this platform where like, oh, okay, we're going to make this ecosystem and then all these companies are going to contribute to this ecosystem. Um, and just, I just have never really seen it work. Like Intuit did a variety of things with like, um, like we're, we're the first launch partner for the Intuit app exchange or something like this. And then we were, you know, uh, in this thing called, uh, what was it even called? I don't even know. Like we were like, we we're built for a while. We were actually built into QuickBooks itself. And, it just didn't matter. It just didn't generate leads to us. We didn't generate leads for them. It just didn't, it just didn't matter. Um, like we're the, we're the top partner for basically everyone in um, the accounting industry, and they don't really matter to us, and we don't really matter to them. And so I feel like everyone talks about the importance of these rich ecosystems. I've, we've never seen any benefit from them, and we are the biggest player in every one of those ecosystems in our industries. And so I don't, maybe accounting is different, or, shocker, maybe it's all bullshit. Uh, maybe actually the way that you make money is you make a great product and you sell it to customers and they pay you for it. And like, it's as simple as that. So uh, let me address the points that you've made. You've made a lot of points there. The first <laughs> point is one of the most successful ecosystems where 30% of the app's revenues have gone to the company and has immensely added to the company's success is Apple, right? It's, it's a platform oh, ecosystem. Oh yeah. so, I completely agree. If you can monopolize a platform, absolutely. Like that, that's a very different world where you are a monopoly-closed ecosystem. Yes, that works great there. No, that's not the only one. I think Salesforce's uh, – actually, if you look at Salesforce's revenue – a huge amount has come from the ecosystem. And, and to, uh, to understand that, all you need to do is look at companies like Viva, which was built for $4 million in financing on top of the Salesforce platform and has become a multi-billion dollar public company. Um, you need to look at Velocity, which did very well, went to $100 million plus in revenue and has been acquired by Salesforce lately. 
Um, we, you need to look at companies like Aptus, which was also a very um, successful app in contract management, etc. So that Map Anything is another one that Salesforce has acquired. So yes. that's another thing. Hang on, let me finish. This is one of the things that um, that is important to the companies that are using self, using their developer ecosystem to build exit barriers and to to expand the number of products built on their platform. So Atlassian strategy has been, they kind of let, they almost like outsource R&D to their developer ecosystem. And then when they see companies gaining traction, they acquired them. They've done numerous acquisitions of little bootstrap companies, little products built on that Jira Confluence ecosystem. So, so Atlassian has done very successfully on that strategy. Shopify has built a wonderful strategy, and they actually report how much money they're paying out to their developer ecosystem um, you know, by selling them to their customer base. Their main strategy is exit barrier. So Shopify is a little uh, you know, e-commerce platform, and the, the amount of exit barrier they have created for their customers is because each customer uses five to six of their ecosystem partner applications. So I think your pushback may be because you, are, um, ex you have experienced a failure in trying to work with Intuit. By the way, Intuit is reconsidering all this right now. I've had conversations with Intuit. Um, they would like to do a platform ecosystem, but, but so far you're right in that Intuit has not succeeded in building a very effective platform ecosystem. And, and that's the question mark that I don't, don't really know what they've done uh, so far that has failed and why they have failed because it could be accounting. I don't know if it's because accounting is not a good, good place to do this. I don't know that, the answer to that question. But, but I think your blanket question that this doesn't work and this is all bullshit is, is not correct. Well, okay, but let me defend my blanket statement that it's all bullshit. Um, and I would say, and you gave a lot of examples of how, for example, people have built businesses on top of Salesforce, uh, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, I would say I would be curious if we look at actual Salesforce Inc.'s revenue, uh, mm -hmm. what fraction of their revenue has come from people licensing the platform versus people buying Salesforce products? Like what, what fraction of it comes through like a developer ecosystem uh, like for licensing the platform to build on top of it versus just directly paying for products that Salesforce hosts on its own platform. Do you, yeah, I don't but I think it's, it's a combination. The strategy, all, all the examples that I gave you, it's all of those factors contribute to companies wanting to do a developer ecosystem. Number one is exit barrier. You know, cloud is very easy switching, very, very easy switching, right? If there, if there are 10,000 more tech companies out there, imagine how much... Um, you know, how much at risk you are for churn, right? Somebody else has a better solution or you sure. think has a better solution, you switch out. The only ones that are going to be able to rise above the noise and, and preserve their position are the ones who have who create exit barriers. So the Shopify strat example is very critical in that sense. And uh, similarly, the, they're all trying to expand their product portfolio. So if you look at Salesforce's strategy, why is Salesforce acquiring Velocity? Why is Salesforce acquiring sure. Map Anything? Because they're trying to expand their product footprint. And, and those are each of those are major revenue generators and are, you know, are identified as potentially much bigger revenue generators because Salesforce now has to grow off a much bigger base. Yeah, agreed. And so, the other point, just a second, there's another point that I've, I've had many conversations on this, which is why I'm, I'm you know, pushing back so heavily into it because <laughs> I can't let you make these statements and, and create a false impression in the market. The other big issue is integration, merger integration. Why is it so easy for Atlassian to acquire a company that is built on their platform because there's no integration overhead, you know? To bring in for a SaaS company to acquire another company that is not built on their uh, stack is very tricky. Okay, yeah, okay. So I would agree with that. Um, so I think we're, we might be saying kind of different things. Um, I would say, like, yes, there are certainly multiple ecosystems out there uh, that are successful. Um, I think the most successful of them, to your point, is Apple's. Uh, like, if you can make 
uh, a walled garden ecosystem um, and then take a huge tax out of it, well, yeah, that works super well. Uh, that's been demonstrated by you know, Google. It's been demonstrated by Apple. It works great there. I think it's much harder to have an ecosystem uh, where there are many competing ecosystems, uh, like the Salesforce versus Alassian ecosystems versus Intuit and so forth. That's a much more mixed bag. Um, I would say to look at someone like, um, like Shopify, certainly that is um, – Shopify is different than Salesforce because to my knowledge, Shopify doesn't actually sell anything directly to consumers. I think they only – they're basically a, a, not a developer platform per se, but they're actually – but they're a platform for other businesses. Yeah, it's a, merchant only, it's a SaaS platform yeah. for merchants to sell do e-commerce. Yes, and so I would say, um, so yes, Shopify's um, platform is successful because that's the only thing they do. Uh, my, the point I'm trying to make is that for companies that sell directly to consumers and also have a platform, the overwhelming majority of the revenue comes from the direct sale of the product. Like most of Apple's revenue is not the app revenue. Most of uh, Google's revenue is not from Google Play. Most of Salesforce's revenue, I think, is actually not from uh, licensing fees for their platform. Um, I, no, you're right, absolutely, though, uh, and maybe kind of shifting the topic uh, over to you know, advice for sort of entrepreneurs. If you want, if your strategy is to build a product and your intention is to get acquired as soon as possible by someone else, building on, someone, on top of someone else's ecosystem really helps that person acquire you. But that is correct. It, that is correct. It also makes it very hard for someone else to acquire you that's not in that ecosystem. If you that build in correct. the zero thing, Salesforce is not going to acquire you and vice versa. So that's it's correct. A, it's, a, it's a risky strategy to basically, before you even started, to basically say, like, I only, there's only one door, uh, and I'm betting everything on that one person. Like, my whole destiny is on this other person that I've never even met yet. Like, I would say that's a dangerous strategy. It, it may be a dangerous strategy, but it's also very expensive to build a SaaS company. And, uh, it's not, though. It's not. Like I would say like this, um, and let's take about the, the, the biggest platform. Let's talk about AWS. Um, and this is why I kind of, I think so much of the market is just bullshit. I think that people will say things that are just objectively false, and, but everyone around them will nod. And like, so it, I think most people, probably nearly all of your listeners uh, would say something like, um, oh yeah, AWS, everyone agrees. It is cheaper to use uh, than running your own servers. Uh, you get fast, it's faster, uh, it's more efficient and things like this. In our experience, and again, we're just one data point, every one of those has been objectively false. Uh, and like the cheapest you can possibly get a server from AWS, for example, is you uh, commit to a three-year contract and you prepay for the first year. And the cost of that first year is just slightly more than the actual cost of buying that actual hardware. Uh, hardware which lasts for more than three years. Let's call it five. So I would say probably the absolute cheapest you can get hardware from, you know, from EC2, if you just go by the math of what it would take to buy the same hardware, it's roughly five times more expensive. And that's if you prepay for an entire year. In practice, especially as a small startup, the, the you're actually... Issue... Every, if, you know, I work with formation stage companies all the time, right? Two guys or one person and, and an outsourced team of developers are building these formation stage companies. So where do you want to spend your resources? The best place to spend your resources is what is differentiated. Going and, and competing against AWS is not a differentiated strategy where you want to, if you are trying to, you know, build a B2B SaaS company in a, you know, narrow niche domain of, let's say, supply chain, logistics, something, and that's what you bring to the table, it's better to abstract out the other layers, the, the lower layers, and focus your attention on building the logic so, yeah. that is going to give you the differentiated advantage on that layer. Which so is I why... I agree. If the argument is hardware is basically cheap and you can't go wrong, literally any, it's, it's basically free. The technology of your platform is basically free. Then yes, I would say like AWS is is basically free, just like everything else. My point is comparing AWS to the alternatives, and I would say it's no, no, also like there are a million is, options. My for point is much more holistic, which is how to build a company. Building a company is expensive. Building a SaaS company is expensive. We haven't even started to talk about the sales channel and the cost yeah, of sales. So I, the again, reason I, I, I maintain. It's not, it's not expensive. Okay, so the, we just agreed the hardware is free, right, uh, basically, uh, regardless of how you do it. Buy it, rent it, it's all basically free. So the next no, cost people is people. are not free. Somebody has no, to put in the expertise free. to build all of that, those pieces. 
I agree. People, people are not free. free. People's expertise is not free. I'm with you on there. Um, and so if we rule out technology costs as basically being effectively zero, your main cost is people. And if you're you know, a brand new company, it's like, yes, if you're like a couple of engineers in the garage, starting your company is free. It's just you. It's your food. It's your, the ramen noodles. That's your cost. That's your hard cost. Um, and I would say and if, you have a, if you choose a very expensive acquisition model, then yes, you've made a choice that makes your company very expensive. That's true. If you choose a viral acquisition model, customers are also free. Um, and so I say these are all choices. I think that the, so to say that it, uh, it's expensive to run a business, I think is to mislead people because that is to suggest that the only way to succeed is to choose expensive, make expensive decisions. I would say some you, of the best companies out there don't make expensive decisions, and it's actually very cheap to run. But my point is the reason these companies like Viva and Velocity did what they did and, and succeeded was they got access to Salesforce's customer base. And, and that's, that's what allowed them to build companies very effectively and very cost-effectively. And that, I mean, I haven't talked that to them. That we, still we were, holds. Like, we were the top app in the uh, uh, Salesforce app exchange for expense management. Didn't matter at all. Like, didn't get any leads. Like, or maybe it would have been good if we didn't have anything else. But because we didn't bet in those channels, we developed a viral acquisition model that dwarfed the sum of every single store that we ever participated in. Um, and so I would say, if you, if you commit yourself to a single channel, then that just looks good. It's kind of the golden hammer fallacy. It's like, yeah, if, if you from day one say, my goal in life is I'm going to build on Salesforce, I'm going to talk to Salesforce customers, and eventually I'm going to get acquired by Salesforce, then you, just, you don't know any alternative. It's just whatever you do is. And the, yes, we can point to specific success cases, but that would be to ignore the thousands or tens of thousands of failures that took that exact same strategy. I think that right. you should be very I mean, selective about cherry-picking things. It, it's, I think what's, what you are reflecting on is, is something that has not worked for you. It sounds like the, the ecosystem strategy hasn't worked for you. You've tried it and hasn't worked for you. Something else, the viral strategy has worked for you. I can give you millions of examples of where viral <laughs> strategy has failed. Absolutely. Because viral strategy is very difficult to do. Yep. And I think that's why the challenge is like, it's very hard to give advice to any entrepreneurs because basically nothing works reliably. Uh, and what worked yesterday might not work today. Or it maybe worked for the first person in the industry, but it won't work for the second. That's right. So, so it's, it's in, what we is do is we test, we test, test different strategies and, and we, we try to find one where there is a, a natural affinity. And, and the one that a lot is working for a lot of people right now because of where we are in the evolution of uh, you know, of the industry with, you know, if you are, think about it, if you're a MarTech company with 10,000 other MarTech companies, you have to find a way to break through and you have to figure, find what, what leverage you can get from the market. Otherwise, you know, you're going to just sit there and, and compete with, uh, with 100 companies. Yeah. So I'd be curious for your, something, uh, your thoughts on something. Um, I wonder, like we talk about the, the industry as if there's always more opportunity, as if there's an infinite amount of new ideas. But mm -hmm. actually, I, I, I question that. Like, I would saturation, say, you know, sure. No, absolutely. Because like, at one point, you know, I, I feel like we got into this rhythm where it's basically like every 10 years, there's this major platform change that changes everything. It's like, okay, we know we come out with mainframes. Okay, now there's PCs. Now there's internet. Now there's mobile. And now there's more mobile. And then more mobile, it's like, it's like we're kind of done. And I would say, basically, right. I think that's phone, I think pretty the much phone every, is every done. app on your think... phone that you use was, was made in the past 10 years. Uh, or, yeah. or it was made probably about 10 years ago. And, uh, and you wouldn't start a, an Apple, you know, iPhone app company today because, I mean, that's like really saturated. Oh, yeah. But, but I would say literally everything that can be done with bits is being done by bits 10,000 times over. Um, there is no first mover advantage. Now it's like the 10,000 mover advantage. Um, like there's not a use, we're not coming up with new use cases. Let's say we're not inventing new thumbs. Everything that can be done on a phone has been done on a phone a hundred times over and is already saturated. It would be very hard to be an entrepreneur. This is maybe like a demoralizing thing for me to say. I don't know how you'd start a company today. It, well, especially I mean, start there's, one that's a big company. There are companies starting, uh, I will give you the vectors in which there are companies starting. One is, Location, you know, there are lots of ecosystems that are underserved. You're, you're sitting in San Francisco and Silicon Valley thinking about it from, you know, like the high-end ecosystem. There are, there are 
company, okay. the Good ecosystems point. that operate on a very different price point. You know, something that costs ten dollars a month is unaffordable for certain ecosystems. You have to deliver that at fifty cents a month. That's a, that's a, an opportunity. It's a very different kind of opportunity, but it's an opportunity. So that's one vector which is not that's saturated great. at that's all. Um, then there is another vector which is all these different workflows in the B2B world. There's various niches and various kinds of AI configurations that are happening in that world. And so something that used to be a normal cloud app, if that becomes an AI-enabled cloud app, that's a, you know, that's a variation and there's, there's all kinds of permutations and combinations of that we are seeing. So, so there are, you know, all of that, all of those are possibilities. And then there are culture changes happening right now, right? So the, in the post-COVID world, there are culture changes happening. I just, uh, I just started writing a series. Um, you can look it up on, on our blog on post-COVID startup ideas. And, and I've talked about ideas that are basically hinged on culture change and behavior change. I mean, this is behavior change of a level we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, in this really compressed point, time frame. COVID, yeah, COVID has certainly upended a lot of things. In a way, I feel like it's, it's kind of brought a 2030 level of sophistication to the 2020 marketplace. Exactly. Um, everyone suddenly is like, you, you, you have to figure out how to work from home. The, the, the 12 idea years with a change in 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that you're right. That has definitely changed things. When it yeah. comes to the platforms, though, I'd be curious um, if a major value of one of the platforms uh, is uh, reaching existing customers, um, but one of the major ways of starting a new business is to reach new customers that are currently underserved. Are there, can you use like the Salesforce platform really to go after a market that is uh, a one-tenth of the price point because it feels like they wouldn't already be in that environment and they couldn't afford that platform. No, that may not be the right way to go after that particular opportunity, but, but if you're trying to AI enable a particular niche product that may be perfectly doable on, on a platform like that. It depends on the platform, depends on the, uh, depends on the ecosystem. But uh, from, a, from the point of view of the company that has, let's say, a $50 million or a $100 million ARR business that needs to develop a moat around their business and go to the next level, I would say that eco- ecosystem strategy is the only strategy. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, think yeah, about maybe, it. I don't know. I would say, like, yeah, I don't think we really uh, have ever seen any value in it. Um, and I don't know that we would want to bank our future on that. Because I would say the best moat is just outgrowing everyone else. It's a, I would say the best moat is having uh, better economics than everyone else in your industry. If you have a lower cost of customer acquisition and a higher ARPU, um, then you can just outbid everyone if for you, If you talk to Shopify, they will have a completely different response to this question than what you do. Because... They had competitors, they had major competitors, and they did a fantastic job by using that moat to create a differentiated position and look at Shopify's market value. So I think it, it varies. Of course, opinions vary based on your own experience. So in your case, it sounds like your experience is negative around ecosystems, which is why you have a negative point of view. But And by the way, this is a wonderful interview from a from a discussion point of view, it's an excellent discussion. So, so I'm, I'm actually thrilled to have this discussion with you in the context of an interview because I think this would be great for readers to, to read the two points of views. But, but, you know, I've had lots of conversations, so I know lots of different perspectives. And Atlassian's perspective is, is obviously, you know, they're, they're basically using their ecosystem, they have numerous users, Numerous developers are using their ecosystem to outsell their R&D, and they're basically acquiring and rehiring, and, and they are, they're expanding their um, app base. So it's, it's you know, it, it's a strategy, and that strategy is clearly working from them. You know, I'm an investor in Atlassian, and it's, it's a wonderful investment. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, clearly there are, there are many strategies to win, um, especially, and probably there's maybe even a spectrum. The closer you are... Uh, to a product that is being sold to engineers, the more a platform strategy will work. Like if you are like, or basically, or like a Shopify, like all they do is sell a platform. And so it works because that's the only thing they do. There's nothing to compare to. 
Um, but most of the fast companies out there are bad. They sell, they do one thing, and they do one thing well, and they've put in a lot of money in building a channel, and uh, you know, they, but they cannot go from you know 100 million to 500 million with that one trick pony. So they need to build a, a bigger business, and they need to need more products. They need the sales force needs to sell more things. You know, they need to increase the deal sizes. Blah blah blah. All of which actually are doable if you can make a, a platform strategy, developer ecosystem strategy work, which is very difficult to do. The developer ecosystem strategy, a well-done developer ecosystem strategy is very difficult to do, which is why we, at this point, there are only a handful of them that are really working well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you there. And so I think, um, so what advice would you give to uh, uh, your sort of, uh, your users and readers in terms of it's like, would you advise them to try to build their own uh, ecosystem, to try to join existing ecosystems, to, or what, like how, what, what rubric would you apply? Um, because clearly you can, so, on one axis you can say, everything works and also everything fails. Great. Uh, no, like, I, sift through that. I would, um, and I, I mean, I have to do this all the time, right? I, I'm constantly advising entrepreneurs. So uh, it depends on, on um, on which domain you are in and what are the options, right? If you're, a, if you're in, an, in a, an ecosystem that is compatible with an Atlassian ecosystem, I would definitely consider that because it is such an active strategy. Um, I have, uh, in, from our ecosystem, we have sold a company to Qualys knowing that Qualys has a very particular strategy where they are trying to buy companies in an acre-hire mode that have specific center of gravity in India. So, so there is a location, geography angle to it. And so I, I do refer companies with that profile to Qualys to acquire if that's a fit and if my companies want to get acquired. Um, now, if you are in a domain where there is no platform ecosystem to plug into, then the question is moot. And, and that is the situation in a lot of domains. There is no platform ecosystem that you can go build on top of. So there's no advantage to gain by trying to look for a platform. So now you have, a diff you have to come up with a different strategy. Now, the, the other side, the flip side of the equation, which is another kind of work we do, which is the... Um, which is why I have such insight into what's happening in the different larger companies trying to build ecosystems is, do you want to build an ecosystem? Do you not want to build an ecosystem? There, I would say, at this point, it's a very topical question that if you want a long-term mode, um, it's, you should consider doing an ecosystem and, and kind of building that moat and building that. And there are a lot of companies in that, that uh, position at the moment trying to figure out how do they go to the next level or how do they defend their position as they go from 100 million to 100 million to the next stage, 500 million, a billion. So that's where I think the ones that are going to be able to do a strong ecosystem strategy will have a very strong chance of success. Now, of course, now you look at Documentum, for instance. This company doesn't need to do necessarily um, an ecosystem strategy because their core business is growing so fast, and COVID has accelerated that, and this whole business of having to do in-person signatures of physical copies, of physical signatures and all that, this is just kind of, it's got so much momentum to just go away and, and give way to doc, uh, digital signatures. I think they, their core business is so strong, and there is you know, only one real competition, which is EchoSign from Adobe. I, I would say this is not a priority for them. That's interesting. Okay, so um, and maybe applying that framework, I would say, for something like Google, I think that... Uh, for a very long time, I think Google had there's no, they just had such a core search or uh, such a core business model that was so strong in search and advertising for that, that they could have just rode that essentially forever. Except mm -hmm. probably mobile changed that because, um, or rather, being the default on the search engine becomes the most important thing. And so I think probably in order to defend their position, they have to take over mobile and then they had to do a Chrome and so forth. 
But right. Kind of rambling a little bit here, but. And they have to do the Android ecosystem in response to the iPhone ecosystem. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's they very They had to do an app store, basically. They had to do that. Otherwise, the, they couldn't be on – the Android would not be as successful. Yeah, but, like, uh, up until mobile, um, Google didn't really need an ecosystem. There was no That's value right. to it. That's yeah. right. They, I mean, they were a search, right. search advertising company. That needed nothing except search advertising. Yeah, I mean, I guess – that's true. I mean, I guess there is sort of an ecosystem of SEO firms and so forth. That's true. Well, I guess they don't make any money on SEO. Hmm. So, so I think um, from a strategic planning point of view, you have to look at where you are. You have to look at where your market is. You have to look at what the competition is and, and you know, what do you, what are the priorities and, and what are the market drivers? So it's not, I mean, yes, everything goes is fine. Everything works is fine. Nothing works is fine. Yes, but <laughs> but you have to make choices and you have to make decisions and you those are the factors that you use to drive those that decision making essentially. Okay, so if you're advising a brand new entrepreneur, um uh so would you suggest people like you you can't start an ecosystem from day one. You were saying like no. around the hundred million dollar mark is where you think an ecosystem starts to make sense? Yes, unless you have managed to do a a viral platform. So for example, there's a company called Able. Um, that's an AI platform. So it's a repeat entrepreneur. He, uh, the entrepreneur is Arijit, who's, uh, who is the CEO of Beyond Code that he sold to Salesforce, and then he started Able. It's an AI platform. And he's doing it as a platform company, which normally, unless you're a, you're a sophisticated entrepreneur, it is not recommended unless if you're a first-time entrepreneur with no track record and no experience, it's not recommended to do a platform company because platform companies tend to be more expensive to build, right? So, um, so he, this is a company, or there's another one called Machinify. These are AI platform companies, and they're built starting as AI platform companies, and, and Machinify is following a, a strategy of going into different apps, um, different verticals, and so on. So, so these are entrepreneurs who are already platforms, you know, so, and they're all sophisticated entrepreneurs. These guys are going to probably want to do a, an ecosystem strategy sooner rather than later. So there's basically like if you're doing a Shopify, for example, your entire business is pre-predicated on, on being able to build an ecosystem. Whereas if you're like a direct product like a DocuSign or something like this, uh, or an Expensify. Well, Shopify um, actually didn't start as an ecosystem. It, it started as a pure, you know, there were five or six e-commerce platform companies that were, you know, kind of going neck to neck, Shopify, BigCommerce, Volusion, um, and a bunch of others. And, and then Shopify pulled out. Um, they, you know, they were very well priced and, and, they just did a good job on, as you say, the viral strategy, the customer acquisition, and so forth. But then they pulled out further because they were able to get the, um, the churn low. And the churn low, I think, is squarely because of the ecosystem strategy. Mm, interesting. Because well, yeah, churn so is very important for a company that is trying to acquire spending so much money in acquiring these customers. They want the lifetime value of that customer. So keeping them... You know, exit barrier is really important. So maybe one thing we haven't talked about here in this very long conversation is about what kind of business you want to have internally. And I would say um, one thing that's very nice about having a business that just sells directly to customers is it's so much more fun. Like um, I'd say a problem, like most of the challenges we've had in like dark days are trying to deal with partners or investors or, or whatever. Um, there's something to be said for the simplicity of like, yeah, we just make a great product, we sell it to customers, and we have a super awesome time doing it. And I think that, um, to your point, I think probably the best business model, if you can pull it off, is a viral business model because then it has unlimited growth, it has perfect economics, and it also requires a very small core team. Uh, there is you no are letting question. Your, if you have a yep. viral business model that sells itself and, and is direct to consumer, it is one of the best business models. There's no question about it. It's most, and and those, are the, those are the kinds of companies that VCs salivate over. 
but it's very, <laughs> yeah. very difficult to find one. Yeah, but I would say as a new entrepreneur, like if I were advising a new entrepreneur, I would say like there's so little certainty in life. Uh, and, you know, banking your future happiness on some sort of the outcomes of someone else's decision is just a, it's, a, it's going to be a hard slog. If you like participate in someone's ecosystem, you're trying to get people to join your ecosystem uh, or whatever it is, it's like you depend on so many people outside of your control. It's just not going to be very fun. Like there's something real fun. That the, I would definitely encourage anyone. It's like if you have an idea for a viral business model, man, go for it. Because but if you have an you idea for a virus business model, how many viral business models are out there? There are a minuscule number of viral business models. Yeah. So you will sit there waiting for Godo and nothing will happen. So you may as well, you know, back up. So that's right. not the way entrepreneurs think. Entrepreneurs are trying to build businesses, and they're trying to build businesses in different scales. There are people who are building a million-dollar business, and they're happy with building a million-dollar business. And, and as far as I'm concerned, because of what I've chosen to do, I respect those entrepreneurs as much as I respect people like you who are trying to build viable business models and scaling. So, um, you know, I, what, I, what I mind is um, if you're trying to extrapolate your experience and trying to tell people, go do that, but that is something that is such a low-probability event that most people are going to fail at it. Well, okay, well, let's dig into that a little bit. I was like, so, yes, that's true. I am advising people to aim for the best things in life. Um, it's like, hey, wouldn't it be great to be surrounded by awesome people uh, that you love to work with, that you've worked with for a long time, to have customers that are super bought in your brand, and it's so bought in that they're actually evangelizing the people around you. Um, and... So you have a profitable, sustainable business model. So when things like a global pandemic hits, like we, hadn't, we haven't let anyone go. We, did, we didn't cut salaries. We didn't stop hiring. Everything just keeps on trucking. Um, and so, yes. Well, that's true um, about it, Amazon as well. Amazon keeps on growing. Oh, yeah. Amazon. Yeah, How many sure. Amazons yeah. are there? Yeah, I agree. And so, but let's take a path, or I would say, I would definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage people. Uh, well, why would you discourage people? If you have something like that, great. Why would you discourage people? And, and frankly, if somebody has a viral business model, they don't need to be discouraged. They will see it. Yeah. <laughs> they um, neither need to be discouraged nor need to be advised because that, those kinds of businesses take off on their own. Well, I mean, nothing, I mean, virtually every business fails anyway. So, like, again, nothing works reliably. Uh, but definitely, if, we're, if you're going to fail, might as well fail trying to do something fun. But, you know, I, I, I beg to differ on that, that kind of negative point because, you know, <laughs> we're working with thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs and they're each succeeding at their own levels and some are failing, absolutely. But, but you know, this, this point of view that everything has to be a billion-dollar company, everything has to scale super fast, I beg to differ with that point of view. Well, I, I Dignity in having, having a livelihood, meeting customer needs, providing a product that is, uh, that is valued by maybe a small set of customers. So what? So fucking what? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a great point. And I, I don't mean, I hope I'm not misrepresenting myself to suggest that the only businesses that matter are those that take over the world. Um, I would say the businesses that matter are those that are satisfying to the employees, uh, that make it, a great place to work and that keeps growing and satisfying their needs. Um, and that can happen at a bigger or small scale. I would just That's say right. uh, it's way more fun having a world under your control than one that, where you depend upon the actions of others. You always depend on the actions of others. Uh, true, true. I guess that's a good point. I guess you can't escape that forever. Um, you cannot. But I'd say I, would, I would much rather depend upon the actions of my customers than the actions of my partners or my platform. So, I mean, those are all, I mean, if a platform is working for you, I just talked to an entrepreneur in Romania, 30% of his business is coming from tying in with another e-commerce platform called Wix. Well, I can tell you, if you talk to that guy, he's going to give you a completely different point of view than the one that you're pushing is you shouldn't depend on Wix because, hey, I'm getting 30% of my business through Wix. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I leverage that? This is a strategy. You know, if a strategy, yeah. you test the strategy, if the strategy works, then you scale the strategy. What is wrong with that? Well, again, it's not about right or wrong. I would say uh, a diversified um, strategy that doesn't uh, have That's right, a diversified strategy, and then, you know, figuring out which ones are working and putting more momentum on that, that's how you build a business. Sure, yeah. Um, 
So great anyway, great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like I don't know how to how to close, but like in my final thing to your listeners and entrepreneurs and readers. Well, uh, let me ask you the the closing question, and you can tell please. me. Uh, so, you know, this is this this uh, interview is positioned as a thought leaders in financial technology fintech uh, interview, which we've gone way out of that um, uh, that core discussion. So, uh, what? What do you see as in, in fintech, since you're kind of, you're not exactly deeply fintech, but you must be observing fintech, what, where are the opportunities in fintech in your opinion? Is that a saturated field in your opinion? Because this is very hot right now. I would say everything's saturated. Um, and so yes, our field like as well. And what, as to this, this term of fintech, I think we like to label things to you know, try to control them, but I don't know exactly what it means. Every business is a fintech business in some way or another. Like, are you generating money? Like, there's, everything has to involve the flow of money somehow. Um, and so I would say, like, in, in our space, um, I know that there is, like, we see a lot of uh, flash-in-the-pan businesses that come about uh, just because it seems like VCs kind of discover an old industry. Um, and throw gobs of money at a failed business model. Like I think like the, the latest thing has been the whole um, explosion in sort of uh, corporate cards. Um, and like, the, the big thing now is uh, losing money at scale on corporate cards. It, it's, it's, previously, it's been like losing money at scale on other things. If there is no need for profitability, um, then yes, anything can lose money, and, you can, and it can be hot so long as people are willing to lose money on it. Um, what we haven't shown is that any of these fintech companies, like we're not any, I would say like there are certainly uh, very successful fintech companies out there that like generate positive cash flow and, and things like this. The vast majority of the hot fintech companies today are not generating positive cash flow. They're just hemorrhaging cash at scale. Um, and so I, I find it very hard and just dis, dis, uh, sort of, what's the right word? I guess, um, I don't know, uh, disruptive to sort of focus on uh, just because someone is losing money at scale doesn't mean they're successful. Um, like, the, like the jury's still out on Uber. Uh, like, is it going to go to zero? It might. It might actually be that this entire thing, this entire ride-sharing industry, might have actually just been a bit of a mistake and ends up to zero value in the end. It's possible. Yeah. No one knows. That still doesn't mean that it hasn't, you know, added value to the uh, to the process, right? It's, it has brought into uh, existence again, behavior change, right? This is this has been a huge behavior change that people do ride sharing. It was not part of society for, and it has, you know. Yeah, and so it could added, be that basically investors subsidized a whole bunch of uh, public transportation, and like that's cool. I mean, that's definitely interesting. Was that the most efficient way to do public transportation? I mean, it might have even been actually. Um, and maybe actually where this goes as we conclude, um, maybe public transportation should be paying for ride sharing because effectively it's just a money losing proposition. Uh, perhaps well, because it's I think the, the, the point that I think if we really played out this conversation that both of us would agree on is what is saturated is the, this incessant appetite for venture scale companies. There are too much money too many funds. There are too many funds trying to put too much money to work, all of whom want to invest in billion-dollar companies. This is not a viable situation. Yeah, and I think that um, – so, I mean, kind of going back to your question about, you know, um, sort of the hotness in fintech, nothing's changed. The world's not – like, when, it, when I launched Expensify in 2008, my tagline was Expensify the corporate card for the masses. That was 2008. Now we're, like, we're in 2020. Like, oh, my God. Corporate cards, have you heard of them? I'm like, yeah, man, literally decades ago. Like, welcome to the party. Um, but uh, the economics of the corporate cards haven't changed. The technology behind them hasn't changed. Nothing's changed other than suddenly it's become very – there's a fad in the VC world. And that's changed. Now it turns out there's a lot of people that are willing to lose a tremendous amount of money on something. And yeah. I guess that's a change in something. But it's certainly not a fintech change. It's just kind of an no. investor, you know, fad change. The, the place where the fintech um, world has opportunities is 
actually something I said earlier in geography, right? If you look at the emerging markets, for example, in Latin America, um, Mercado Libre, which is their version of Amazon, um, they have a payment product that they that is gaining some traction. So, you know, all these like the fluidity in digital payments is something that is gaining traction in, in these emerging markets and there's behavior change that it's engineering. So Paytm in India, for instance, the whole Kenyan story of uh, digital payments, micropayments, etc. All that has a completely different unit economics model. It's a completely different profitability path, all of that. But there are opportunities there to do disruptive things or, or even to do incremental things that add value and create value. So um, is that well, – I mean, yeah. it has okay, to be so, played out. I mean, it so has I to be explored. Huh? So, yes, I think that um, uh, none of that involves new technology, though. Um, it's basically existing use cases – uh, and existing technologies being perfected in distributed new markets. Yeah, that's great. I think that's that's all amazing. And I think maybe you know, new technology is not a requirement, right? Uh, say that again. Sorry. New technology is not a requirement for entrepreneurship. Agreed. It's really uh, uh, how you I, go I, to market. Yeah, we we agree entirely on that. In fact, I would say technology is kind of the least important part of it. Um, I think yeah. any start any engine or any startup that's uh, laboring over, you know, their hot new technology written in the latest language on the finest stack, whatever it is, like, dude, none of that shit matters. All your creativity needs to be focused on customer acquisition because that's the only hard part of what you're going to do. Like, no well, one fails new technology matters if, it's, if you're writing the next, uh, next database architecture or if you're, you know, and there have been companies like that that have been built on that principle. Like if you look at the Cassandra ecosystem with data stacks or MongoDB. These are, you know, heavy-duty new technology plays. So that's got its own bucket. Yeah, but I would say uh, – but, yes, I would think the, um, the, when it comes to fintech, at least, there is nothing new in fintech. Um, every use case has been resolved forever ago. All of the technology that people are using has already been – established like maybe cryptocurrency is kind of that but that's not certainly new and it's that's a whole different world really that is a whole different world um like when it comes to fintech it's like the the innovation that's happening here is not like now you can use a corporate card dude you there's been forever the innovation is uh consolidation of use cases into ever more powerful platforms that do more for you in a seamless fashion it's not about new use cases it's about the seamless integration of existing use cases i think that's the future of fintech well, and, and the other thing that is, I think, in fintech that is interesting is behavior change. I think technology is not the issue. The issue is, are people going to accept behavior change? I mean, COVID has yes. been another massive behavior change inducers on the fintech side. In India, for example, um, digital payments have taken, gone through the roof in the COVID era. Again, it's that 12 weeks of change I mean, 12 years of change in 12 weeks kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, just the market adoption is happening at a pace that, ne- that has never been seen before in some, some categories of fintech. Yeah, so I think that you're absolutely right in that the existing use cases and the existing technologies are being deployed faster and more broadly than ever. Uh, and, so th- and that's an exciting change, certainly. Yeah. And then I think you can wrap, um, you know, there's use cases, there's broader use cases, and then there is niche use cases. So I think in one of the things that I like about um, people who are willing to work with smaller ideas is that you can take something that's out there, wrap additional domain knowledge or workflow elements to it, and cater to a market, a niche market, and you know, add value on top, and, and as a result, extract, you know, returns on top of that, those kinds of niche use cases. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, again, this, this, I wouldn't say the metro, well, I mean, no, there's no intrinsic value to anything, depending upon your philosophy, but I would say I think the value that I care about is really what helps the people of the company live 
rich, have fun, save the world. Like live good and rich and satisfying lives. And I think that you can do that as a one-person company. You can do that as a thousand-person company. I would say um, the key is not to lose sight of what you're trying to do and to kill everyone in, in your company laboring for some sort of number on a spreadsheet and then to have some sort of exit on paper that in fact has meant everyone lost money and wasted time. I think so long as I would encourage any entrepreneur uh, to focus on, you know, their family, on their friends, on the people they work with, on where they work and how they spend their time and making sure it's all adding up to a rich life because no number of serial entrepreneur successes is going to replace that hole deep within if you aren't living your life as it's tempting. Right. That I agree with. And, and that's very much in the philosophy of one million by one million is that, you know, excess is not a requirement for success and it doesn't always, in fact, breed success, uh, breed happiness at all. Yeah. All right. So great speaking with you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a real pleasure, and we're going to have to uh, talk again in another six years or so. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. I see. Bye-bye.